So the Bible reading today is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. I'm reading from the NIV version. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Liz, for that reading. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. I just want to say that again. It is very good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you uh, later. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at WDBC. And a special welcome to you this morning as we journey through the book of Hebrews. A special welcome as well to those who are joining us online. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to pull it out. You're going to want to have the text open in front of you as we go through God's Word together this morning. I trust you'll find it to be an enriching experience. Uh, that is in exactly indeed what I had this week, an enriching experience. It was a cultural experience. Uh, our executive pastor, Chris Cullen, invited me out to test cricket. Not to test cricket, but test cricket, uh, which is apparently uh, another version, variation of this great sport. Uh, it's the Ashes Test. We were in Sydney, uh, and it was a wonderful experience. I felt like, as I told someone later, I took two steps forward, uh, and two steps forward, two steps closer to becoming a genuine Aussie. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but I'm just that little bit closer after going to test match cricket uh, on on Wednesday of this week. Not the best day to go, but it, it was a good day all around. Uh, a great company and a great chance to just observe and see uh, why Australians love the sport and moreover, how they act when they watch the sport. That was really uh, intriguing and fascinating to me. Um, 
Another step that I've yet to take in understanding Australian culture has to do with Australian culture and border policing and border rules in society. Cricket was not the only sport that made headlines this week. Uh, Australian uh, tennis made headlines this week. Uh, you maybe have heard about the detainment, are we calling it a detainment, of, uh, of the Serbian uh, number one men's player, uh, Djokovic. Uh, he, he asked if he could come to Australia. He said, they said, yes, come to Australia, and then he got to Australia, and he wasn't allowed in. Uh, And I want to just thank the Australian government for giving me the perfect opening illustration for this message on Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, because that's what it's all about. It's about being invited into a place, leaving, departing, and then not actually being able to get in. Now, I haven't been following the news, so I don't know if Djokovic is still here. I don't know if he's leaving yet or if he's going to be let in. Uh, He can sort that out. I'm sure they're sorting that out elsewhere. Uh, But you and I uh, have uh, an invitation as well. It's an invitation to God's kingdom. It's an invitation to see Jesus. Uh, We're giving the theme, seeing Jesus, to the rest of this letter through the book of Hebrews. And it's about seeing Jesus not simply now, but also seeing Jesus then, seeing Jesus face to face in his kingdom, in our eternal rest, our eternal home, but also about seeing Jesus now. There's a good argument to be made that the whole book of Hebrews is pointing us towards this theme. You're going to hear it recurring again and again and again. In the opening chapters, it was about seeing Jesus as God's final definitive spokesman, the one through whom God is speaking definitively. In chapter 2, it was about paying attention even closer to Jesus and seeing him, though he was made low, seeing him exalted above the angels. Here it's about seeing Jesus, but as we come to the first of what will be a few warning passages through this letter, we're going to encounter an obstacle, an obstacle to seeing Jesus. As I shared with those who were at the family service this morning, this generation of Christians, we see Jesus not with our eyes, but we see him with our hearts through faith. Paul would pray for the church in Ephesus that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. It's not as if we can't see Jesus because he doesn't exist, because we know that there were witnesses who saw him. There were eyewitnesses. They saw him risen from the dead, and they saw him ascend into heaven. And we know that we will see him with our own eyes when he returns, consummating his kingdom at his second coming. But for now, we're told that we are blessed if we see Jesus through the eyes of faith, if we see him, if we perceive him through our hearts. And our hearts perceive him by faith in response to the word of God. As uh, Pastor Stephen shared with us last week, there is a wonderful promise that is given to us that, that God has been building a house, a household, as well as a realm, a kingdom, and we are invited to share in that kingdom. But we're told in verse 6, That to share in that kingdom, we must hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. There's a condition that's put on it. And so our big question this morning as we begin, 
our big question is, how can we be sure that we're going to get in? That's the condition in verse 6. How can we be sure we're going to get in? Think of Djokovic. He thought he was going to get in, right? He got on the plane, flew to Australia, landed in Melbourne, gets off the plane. He had every expectation that he was going to get in, only to be denied. You could argue that we are in process of entering. And so the question that's a bit uncomfortable, but that's raised by this text is, well, how are we going to be sure that we're going to be there? That we're going to enter into all that God has had for us, has for us. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see the big idea is that God is warning us to guard our hearts. You see, if there is any question about whether we get in, it's not on God's part. There's no question about the invitation. There's no question that the way has been prepared. There's no question that Christ's death is sufficient to forgive us of our sins. There's no question about the reality of the resurrection life and the glory that is to come. All of that is on offer. The only real question is, will we persevere in our trust? Will we continue in the faith? The big idea this morning is that God warns us to guard our hearts. This text is really a warning through a negative example. He's going to look to the wilderness generation and say, look what they did. Don't do that. Don't be like them. God is warning us to guard our hearts. But it's a guarding our hearts, not just in the way of, look, your heart is, is fragile and, and, and sort of the wellspring of life, like Proverbs say. You know, there's a certain wisdom in guarding your heart. You know, we tell young people, don't give your heart away too early. Don't, don't, don't commit everything all at once. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. There's kind of a, a sort of a wisdom to sort of guard yourself, protect yourself. That's not the warning that we're getting in this text. The warning here is that our heart is the greatest threat to us entering into what God has for us if it becomes hard. That is the simple truth this morning. Our greatest threat, and I'm talking to Christians, our greatest threat to entering into the promise of God is our hardness of heart. The way has been paved you know who the captain of salvation is. Jesus has already entered there. He, he's already in. Everything has been settled. The only threat really remaining for those who believe is that we will become faithless. That is the only threat. We're going to see this morning it comes through a hard heart. That's a simple truth. I know a lot of us go through seasons of doubt and we wonder, is God really good? Is God, is God going to come through on his promise? And, and there's mercy for those who doubt. There, there, there's mercy for those who are wondering and exploring and still investigating God and his character. What there is not mercy for is for those who turn away in faithlessness, who in hard-hearted rebellion spurn the living God. And the writer to the Hebrews is speaking to Christians just like I'm speaking to Christians today. Now, if you don't know Christ, if you're not a Christian, your biggest threat is the wrath of God that's over you right now. If you don't know Christ, your biggest threat is 
simply that, that you don't know him and that you are not forgiven. You have not been pardoned. You, you have not been freed from your sins. You are still in captivity. You have not been born again. If you don't know Christ, those are your threats. If you do know Christ and you've entered into his, this family, you, you, you've entered in, you've been, you've been adopted, you've tasted of the Spirit, you've heard the voice of God, you've, you've accepted what Christ has given to you. If that's you this morning, the only real threat left is that you will spurn him through hardness of heart. Or to put it another way, that your heart will become so calloused that it becomes unable to perceive Jesus. You will stop seeing Jesus because your heart will calcify and will become hard in a state that is not receiving him. That's the simple truth. Just by way of overview, this text falls neatly into three, three parts. You're going to hear the Spirit's warning in verses 7 to 11. That's from a quote from, uh, from Psalm 95. Next, you're going to hear the author's warning or the speaker's warning in verses 12 to 15. And finally, an opportunity for the hearers, for you and I, to respond in verses 16 to 19. That's sort of how the text falls out if you're looking at it in your Bible. In terms of our context, I just want to share a few things. We already talked about verse 6. Verse 6 introduces this idea that, that, that we are God's household, but there's this small word, if. If indeed we finish. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And so we need to understand that the context that this warning comes in is to those who the writer is already comfortable saying are part of God's house. The tone of this warning is one of deliberate ref reflection. It's, it's meant to drive us to a sober reckoning and a pondering. It's not designed to terrorize. It's not designed to get you to distrust grace. It's not designed to make you question the, the sufficiency of Jesus or the legitimacy of your salvation. What it is designed to do is if your heart is growing cold and you're falling into sin, it's to cause you to repent. That's the tone. It functions in following a series of comparisons. Moses has been, Jesus has been compared to Moses. Moses is held up as a positive example. Moses was faithful. Well, look how much more faithful Jesus is and look at who he is. But now the comparison is going to turn on unfaithfulness. If the wilderness generation was unfaithful to Moses, how will we respond to Jesus? It's about comparisons and contrasts and it invites us to say, well, I'm not going to be like that. The whole purpose of this is to prevent error. We don't want the wilderness generation, we don't want that situation to happen to the church of God. We don't want anyone here to be like those who have heard and have begun to respond, but to use Paul's language, are like stillborn children who, who do not actually make it into life. Or to use the language of this text, who fall in the journey. 
Finally, there's two passages I encourage you to write down if you're, if you're really interested in digging into this message and want to understand what's going on in Hebrews 3. You need to get your head around Psalm 95 and Numbers chapter 14 because these are in the forefront. Well, Psalm 95 is the basis of much of, much of this text, but Numbers 14 is also a key passage. We're going to look at that a little bit later. The title of this message is very simple, is Beware a Hard Heart. Beware a Hard Heart. Beware its potential. Beware its danger. And beware its cost. Beware a Hard Heart. Beware its potential. Beware its danger. And beware its cost. Let's pray as we ask God's help. Father in heaven, would you... Just anoint my lips this morning to speak the words that you give through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would still our hearts long enough to hear and to receive the things that you would communicate to us through the Spirit. Father, we have heard the call of Christ to abandon this world, to come into the kingdom. We have repented and we've turned and we've begun walking in the way of discipleship. But Lord, we need to continue. We need to follow in Jesus' footsteps. So Lord, would you help us today? May we be strengthened by grace. May we be encouraged and grounded in the cross and in the resurrection and our future certain hope. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So beware a hard heart. First of all, it's potential. It's potential. The potential of a hard heart is that not all who hear God's promise actually believe it. Not all who hear God's promise actually believe it. <clears throat> Look with me, verses 7 to 11. Notice verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, this is present tense. So as the Holy Spirit says, in other words, God is speaking. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, God's talking to you right now. He doesn't say, so as we read in the ancient text, <laughs> as, as was heard long ago. <laughs> Sometimes you hear those introductions of Scripture. Here it's different. As the Holy Spirit is saying, I love this. Have you ever conceived of the Christian community as those who are listening to the voice of God? What if that was our understanding of what church was? Church isn't one of many religions. Church isn't a place you go to practice your faith. Church isn't even simply those who love Jesus, as beautiful as that is. But what if we conceived of church as those who are collectively listening to the voice of God? It's actually probably closer to the true definition of the word church. The word church means the assembly, the gathering. You gather for the purpose of a hearing. These are people that God has gathered together. Our understanding when we meet together is that we are in tune to the voice of God. And I cannot tell you how important that is in our day and age. In our day and age, we are inundated with voices. Voice after voice after voice after voice. Every person is given a megaphone. Every person has a, has a social media account virtually these days. We have multiple social media platforms. You can communicate through TikTok videos, through Instagram photos. You can communicate through Facebook. 
Some of you are not into that as much anymore. All these voices are communicating. And let me tell you what's happening as, as a society. As we become inundated more and more and more with different voices, you know what we're learning to do? Tune them out. We learn to tune them out. We distrust everything. We will often use one filter. It's the one between our ears. How does that seem to me? If I like it, I'll listen to it. God stands over his creation and he says, I am speaking to you. Listen to what he says. As the Spirit says today, <laughs> if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Notice the premise, today, Today, if you hear his voice, there is no time like the present. All that matters is are you hearing the voice of God right now? Are you in tune? Are you listening to him today? The scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, if you are receiving what he's communicating, then then make sure, here's the warning, do not harden your heart. I was telling the family service about this picture of concrete, you know? Concrete, it comes out, it's sludgy and it's messy, and, 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 but it sets. And once it sets, it's not pliable anymore. You can't move it around, you can't shape it. We loved this as a kid because remember when they put concrete in, my, in our backyard, my parents took me out. They said, oh, here, here, let's, let's put your footprints in the concrete. Beautiful. And I grew, but that footprint remained the same. Reality changed all around me, but that footprint stayed there. God is saying, I am doing something here. I am, I, I'm in process of bringing you, wilderness generation, into glory, into the promised land. But if you harden your heart, you will be set. They tested God and they tried him. If you look back in the scriptures, this is Psalm 95. Psalm 95 takes a lot of the wilderness generation experiences and the times where they rebelled against God and it sort of fuses them into this one theme. But there's multiple instances in the past for instance, when they cross the Red Sea and they get to the other side, they say, where's the water? There's no water. And they begin trying God by saying, did you bring us out here to die? Is that why you brought us through the Red Sea? Later on, when they say, there's no food and God provides miraculous food, pretty soon after they say, we don't, we don't like this food anymore. We had better food in Egypt. And then when they're standing on the brink of the promised land, they're about to, they, 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 they've, they're ready to go in. The spies come back and they say, it's, it's a good land. It's got plenty of good things, but man, there's some scary people in it. And they say, oh God, you brought us here to kill us, didn't you? And some of the real cynical people who are really good with words said things like, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here, God? 
was enough burial plots in Egypt. You had to bury us here by letting us be destroyed. And they tested God and they said, oh, you don't care about our kids. You don't, you don't care about the future generations. You don't care more than we do. God said all of this to him. It was them putting him under the crucible after they'd seen him do all these miracles. That's important. As the writer says, therefore, that is why, verse 10, I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. When your heart becomes hard, really quick, three things happen. The first thing is you become unable to receive the word of God. You are unable to respond in faith to the truth that's given to you. God's word comes to you, but like, but like that slab of concrete, and it, it, God's word bounces off it like a rubber ball. You become unable to hear. The next thing that happens is you are, you're tricked. You're, 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 you, you are deceived. In other words, there, there's a change within you that happens, and, and, and you are not rightly understanding or perceiving. The third thing that happens is you wander or you stray. Ultimately, you turn away from the living God. And God, so, so exhausted by this, by their refusal to believe and their rebelliousness to his actions and his words, he's so struck by this. He says, I'm, I'm going to swear you won't be able to enter. There's three oaths in the book of Hebrews that are mentioned that are significant. One is an oath that God made to Abraham. One is an oath that God makes to Jesus to say, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the third oath. He swears they shall not enter his rest. This is looking back at the wilderness generation. Let me tell you what this means for us. We need to beware the potential of a hard heart because God's promise is received when it's believed. Some of us, I know that, I know it because I've been there. Some of us are thinking, God, if you just gave me a little more proof. God, I just want to see a little bit more. God, do something miraculous today so that, so, so that I can continue following you. And while God sometimes mercifully answers those prayers, that is never meant to be the state of your relationship with him. One where you set out the hoops for God and you say, God, I'll trust you if you do this, 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 and this. God, I'll do this if you go A, B, C, D for me. That's never meant to be the state of our relationship with the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord is meant to be one of trust where we say, God, where do you want me to go? God, you tell me where to step. You tell me where to put my feet. You tell me how I'm supposed to respond to this situation. God, I trust you. Will you speak to me so that I can follow you? That's how it's supposed to be. So we need to be aware because sometimes we get in this mode of we say, God, you know, I need you to dance to my tune. Now don't get it twisted. You can ask God for things, absolutely. You, you, tell him what you need. Tell him what you want. Tell him what you desire. Ask for it. But 
Ask in faith. Ask trusting in his goodness. Be ready for whatever he says. Don't put your trust on the table and say, God, I'm going to take it away the minute things don't go the way how I like. Because that posture will leave you with a hardened heart. And so God is saying, you, you need to know this, this is the potential. And do you know the sad irony with that wilderness generation? Terribly sad. God was calling them to worship, and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And God did all these things, showed all these plagues, all these signs and everything to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He said, I won't believe. And that's exactly, exactly where these people ended up. They ended up the same place that Pharaoh did, with a hard heart. It can happen. He's not writing this about the Egyptians. He's writing this about the same people that he delivered, the same people who ate the Passover, the same people who ate the manna, the same people who drank the water from the rock. That's the ones he's talking to. Secondly, we need to beware the danger of a hard heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. Get a bit agitated. <laughs> Verses 12 to 15, beware the danger of a hard heart. We see, and we mentioned this already, a hard heart acts in unbelief. Brothers and sisters, <coughs> whew, sorry, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This is the command portion. This is the part of the scripture where the, the hearer is addressing, excuse me, the author is addressing the audience and he's saying, okay, this is what God has said in the past. Let me tell you now, let me tell you now what we're to do about it. Literally, it's watch out, see to it, be careful. Think of, the, think of the yellow, you know, the yellow caution sign, the yellow danger sign. See to it, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We talked about those three effects of a hard heart. But encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We mentioned this, sin tricks us into thinking that what is bad is actually good. Sin tricks us into thinking what is bad is actually good. And that is a way that our heart gets deceived and tricked. And you know this. Some of you have been walking with Christ for a very long time. And you, you're saying, why is that sin still tempting me? Why am I going back to that? You know, you know the freedom that Christ has given you. But the call of sin just continues and continues. And it's saying, no, 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 this is good. This is good. A hard heart is tricked. But we have come to share in Christ... We have come to share in Christ 
if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. What we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is this is a collective responsibility. This is not as if the writer is saying, hey, you, can you make sure, you know, you, can, go ahead, go home tonight, sit down at your desk and work out, you know, is my heart hard, is it not hard? Sort of go through that project on your own, do that, and then come back and let us know, you know, how you're going. No, this is, this is a collective command. It's to everyone. It's, it's to us to say, Windsor District Baptist Church, it's on us, it's on all of us to make sure that none of us has a hard heart. Do you see the difference? In the world, your life is your responsibility. In the world, you stand or fall on your own performance, on your own willpower, on your own energy. But in the kingdom of God, there is an exhortation to all of us that we are collectively responsible to see to it that none of us falls. And that's why we need to encourage each other daily, not once a week. How often do we think, oh, it's been a pretty rough week, but I'm glad Sunday's coming. I'll get some encouragement. <laughs> and it's great to be encouraged and being together, but what about the daily encouragement? What, what about the, the time where we can actually go through the regular patterns of life and be built up in that? That's the exhortation. This also acknowledges that there's no way we're going to be able to do this alone. If you're traveling on your own path, realize this is extremely dangerous. Verse 14, we see a bit of the positive. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, as has just been said. The word share there means to become a partner. And we can look at that in one sense and say, oh, we're sort of co-equals with Christ. It's probably not the best sense to look at it. The word partner in English, it implies an equality here that, that's probably not here. What really is saying, we, we get a share in Jesus. What belongs to him I, I get a stake in that. It's not Christ doing his bit and I do my bit. It's, it's I get a share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. A hard heart acts in unbelief. It doesn't rest in what God has said. It relies on itself. It falls victim to the individual analysis. It's like Eve in the garden saying, well, you know, the tree looks pretty good. That looks like desirable fruit. I know God said that, but I'm going to do this anyway. It's like Adam in the garden saying, you know, I know God said that, that, that we weren't to eat of this and that we're going to die, and, but oh, she's my wife, you know, and, and I, I, you know what? I think it's better for me that I eat the fruit. It's that level of calculus that's going on. 
we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We asked this question earlier, what encourages you to keep trusting the Lord? Who has encouraged you in your life to keep trusting the Lord? We need to know these things if we're going to live them out. So the danger of a hard heart is that it acts in unbelief, but ultimately a hard heart turns away from the living God. I mentioned earlier that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 4 that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the church through faith. And Spurgeon had a great line I was reading this morning. He said, you know, there's no point. I'm going to paraphrase for our modern English. He says, there's no point in having Christ in your foyer or in your lounge room if you're serving drinks with the devil in the kitchen. If, if your heart becomes hard, if my heart becomes hard, we effectively are, are not just closing ourselves off, we're turning Christ out. We're turning away from the living God. It's a scary thought. I read about people deconverting, reading about ex-evangelicals, I think is the buzzword that's going around today. And I'm sad on a number of levels, but I can tell you there's none of them who were saying, you know what, I've turned away from the living God. You wouldn't do that. That's not how it appears. No, how it appears to the hard heart is you're separating from a tradition. How it appears to the hard heart is you're establishing your own values. You're choosing your own path. You are, you're improving upon the foundation that somebody has given to you. That's how it sounds to the hard heart. But in God's eyes, you are pushing away the very author of life. You're saying, God, be gone. And it's a scary thought. A hard heart will keep you from seeing Jesus now, and it will keep you from seeing Jesus in eternity. And so finally we come to the end, the cost. Beware the cost of a hard heart. Unbelief makes us forfeit our share in Christ. That's the cost of a hard heart. Verses 15 to 19. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And then the writer or the speaker is going to hit them with a series of questions and is designed to prompt them to respond. And I want you to think about what it would mean to answer these questions. As you, as you hear these questions, I want you to answer them for yourself. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? This whole generation we're talking about that died, are they not all the ones who ate the Passover and walked through the Red Sea? 
And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Who was God angry at? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Verse 18, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Guys, these aren't fairy stories. These are people. These are people who witnessed some crazy things. And in the end, it wasn't enough. Because their heart was hard. Verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. I talked at the, in the opening about how this is a comparison and a contrast. You say, you know, Moses was faithful. Look at Jesus. He's even more faithful, and he's not a servant in the house. He's a son in the house. And then here, well, if Moses was faithful, the wilderness generation was unfaithful. Jesus is really faithful, and then who are we going to be? We have that choice. Are we going to be the unfaithful, or are we going to be the faithful? To use Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, to whom is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you? To whom is he going to say, away from me, evildoer? To whom is he going to banish into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? Who is he going to do this to? Is it going to be us? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? Are we going to hear God's voice? God initiates this warning. Unbelief makes us forfeit our share in Christ. You see, the moment they set foot in the Red Sea, it was dry ground. It was a miracle. The moment that they ate the Passover and they put the blood on the door, the angel of death, it skipped over them. They, they, they missed the plague. They missed the death of the firstborn. The moment they got into the wilderness and, 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 and Moses, first he speaks to the rock. Later on he would strike it, but first he speaks to the rock. Excuse me, strikes the rock and the water comes out. They're, they're drinking that water. All, that, all of this happened to them. And they actually get to the promised land and they send the spies out, one from each tribe, to spy out this place that God has sent them. And, and they get on the edge of the promised land. They're right there, literally right there. And the spies come back and Moses says, give us a report. Tell us what you saw. Tell us about this thing that God has promised. And 10 of the 12 were afraid. They said, yeah, it's good. It's good, but oh boy. We're like little grasshoppers to those people in there. There's no way we could survive. There's no way we, we could get in there. 
They looked at their circumstances. They took their eyes off the living God. They forgot about everything that he'd done for them. They looked at their situation and they said, you know what? I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to make a me choice right now. And I'm going to say, you know what? Nah, it's better off just wandering around here in the wilderness than even trying to get in there. And they turned away from God. And God said, for every day that you had of checking out the land, for every day, and they spent 40 days spying out the land. God said, for every day that you scoped out all that I had promised you and turned away, for every day of that is a year that you will wander. And they wandered 40 years until they all died. Only two got in. You know who they were, most of you? Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua. And you know what they said? They said, God is with us. When they came back and gave the report, they held firm the confidence that they had. Exactly what the writers of Hebrews is saying in 3 verse 6. The same confidence they had when they stepped into the Red Sea is the same confidence they had as they spied out the promised land. They remained steadfast in their hearts. Christian, we need to remain steadfast in our hearts. Otherwise, all this Meaningless. Meaningless. Unfaithfulness leaves us outside of God's rest and outside of his kingdom. This is not saying that people, you know, never sin. We do sin. But hearts that are steeped in sin and 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 cling to sin are letting go of Christ. They're forfeiting the rest that he has. So beware a hard heart. We all have the potential to have a hard heart. We need to keep listening to God's voice. There is danger in having a hard heart, and there's an ultimate cost in having that hard heart. But I want to talk for a moment just about the remedy. How do we keep our hearts soft? How do we keep our hearts sort of pliable and fresh and listening and responding to God. The first is to remember the one who called us. You're here not because you are smarter or wiser or better than other people. You're here because God loves you and he called you into his family. Because the God who made you has put his spirit in you and he wants you for his own and he wants to give you the kingdom. He wants to share all the joy and everything with you. That's why you're here. He's the one who speaks to you. You need to remember that. This isn't the product of a bunch of entitled white men. This is not the product of a group of secretive medieval knights or monks who said, I know how we're going to take over the world. This, this isn't some sort of random offshoot of Judaism that was just quirky enough to work. The church is not here by accident. The church is here by, because of the author. Because God himself is speaking and calling out lost men and women into his family and into his kingdom. You need to remember why you're here. You need to remember who speaks to you. You need to remember where the truth comes from. In other words, as John, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. We need to remember that. The second thing that helps us is to remember to encourage each other. Oh, Please, we are struggling. We are struggling 
We got a pandemic that's raging across the world. We got a government who knows, doesn't know what to do except to say, get away from everybody else and isolate. Preserve your physical life. But can I tell you, your physical life will mean nothing if you let your spiritual life die. If you stop encouraging each other, if you stop asking one another, how are you going with the Lord? If you stop hearing stories of saying, how are you walking with Jesus? If you stop going alongside your brother and sister and saying, I need you. I need you to pray for me. I need you to build me up. If you stop asking people who are more mature to disciple you and lead you in the faith, if you neglect your spiritual life, what is the value of your physical life? And we need to do it together. We need to do it collectively. That's why at this church, as long as it is possible, we will meet. Uh, it's no judgment on those of you who have to stay away. I understand. No judgment. But we will meet. We will worship. We will gather. We will give you an opportunity to connect with the Lord and connect with one another as long as we can. Because this is who we are. It's a collective responsibility. What I need from some of you is to stop thinking just about yourself or your nuclear family. I need you to start thinking about the brothers and sisters. I need you to start thinking about people who are new believers among us. I need you to stop thinking about how you are going to get yourself financially set up for the next 5, 10, 15 years. I need you to think, how am I going to establish the church? How am I going to let the Spirit of God speak through me and build up the believers? That's what we need. We need you to take collective responsibility for this flock. And anyone who says to me, Jonathan, you're the pastor, that's your job. Can I tell you, my job is to equip you to build each other up. My job is not to build all of you at the same time. That's impossible. We need you to take collective responsibility. For those who are here and for those who are not here. For those who you've seen this week and for those who you haven't seen in two years. And you feel really awkward about talking to. We need you. Because we all need to encourage each other. And I don't mean say, come to church so we can shake hands on Sunday morning. I mean, come into your life. Let them in. You go into their life. If you say, I don't know if they'll let me, ask yourself, are they a Christian? Okay, yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Well, guess what? You're family. And on that basis, you go into their life. We need to do this. And finally, the last thing to remember to keep our hearts from getting hard. All right, before I go there, one more thing. You can't encourage somebody you don't know. How are you going to encourage somebody whose life to you is this big? Can we all agree that we've watched enough TV over the last two years? Have we seen enough movies over the last two years? Have we watched enough news over the last two years? Can we all agree today that I'm going to ask the Lord, who have you put in my life? Who am I to encourage today? Who am I to build up today?
Folks, there is absolutely no point in going through the motions. It is futile. Let's live out the truth. Let's live it from our hearts. Let's live it in sincerity. Let's live it when it's uncomfortable. Let's live it when we don't feel like we're strong enough to do it. And when we fall, let's acknowledge it, let's ask for help, and let's repent. Finally, remember, not only remember who's speaking to you, not only remember our collective responsibility to encourage each other, but remember, remember that starting is not the same as finishing. Starting is not the same as finishing. Now, some of you are going to say, are you trying to say that my salvation isn't secure? <laughs> salvation is entirely secure. Jesus Christ paid the, paid the debt. It's done. He knows who, who are his. I don't. He does, but I don't. Do you know? Can you name all those who are his? Probably not. Starting is not the same as finishing. Let's not confuse the two. Now, it's glorious to start. It's glorious to begin in the way of discipleship. To start means that you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. To start means that your sins have been forgiven. To start means that you've heard the voice of God and you're following Jesus Christ. That's what it means to start. To start means you're brought into fellowship and relationship with, with the church. To start means that you now see the world properly. You see it from God's eyes and not from your own eyes. To start means that you actually have the capacity to kill your sin, to let your sin die, and you don't have to give in to your desires all the time. All of that comes with starting. And you can experience abundant life now because, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here and it's at hand. But that's not the same as finishing. We're not staring face to face with Jesus yet. We're not glorified yet. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we haven't seen the eradication of all unrighteousness yet. We haven't stopped crying yet. We haven't stopped suffering yet. We haven't experienced the fullness of the joy yet. The nations haven't experienced the healing yet. We are not all brought together in our diversity into perfect unity yet. That, that hasn't happened. Let's not pretend we're there. You see, what happens is we're so unprepared for the journey, we're so unprepared for the struggle, we write our theology to fit our hearts instead of receiving it from God. Our theology is from God that you begin and you belong to him, but right now, if that faith doesn't persevere to the end, you're outside the rest. There is a glorious end. And you're not on your own to finish the race. That's the beautiful thing. God's not saying, great, I'll put you in the race. That's what Jesus died for. Now go ahead and run it yourself. No. God's saying, 
I will get you there, but you must follow. You must stay attuned. Stay with me. Starting is not finishing. The big idea is that God warns us to guard our hearts. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I love that we get to do this life together. I can't, I can't begin to explain the reasons why God has brought us together at this time and at this place. What I do know is that he has. And I know that I am called to equip you and to serve him by helping you fulfill the calling that he's given you. That should be your focus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be added unto you. If you haven't seen Jesus in a while, I don't mean with your physical eyes. I mean if you are struggling in faith to see Christ. Ask yourself, is my heart hard? Does the word of God have little impact? Am I, am I captivated by sin? Am I actively pushing him away? You won't see Jesus if you're doing those things. So what do you do? Number one, tell him. It's not a mystery to him, but there's something in you acknowledging before God where you're at. Number two, listen to the Spirit of God speak to you through his word. Get yourself in the scriptures. You say, I don't get anything out of it. Fine. Somebody told me once, he said, the best way to have a quiet time, Jonathan, he said, start reading your Bible and don't stop until the Lord has spoken to you. He might stop you in the next sentence. He might stop you in the next word. You might read 10 chapters. We need to just get ourselves in the Spirit's voice. Let's pray. Father, would you strengthen and uphold us, encourage us. Lord, we need your sustaining power. Would you set Christ before our eyes today? May we receive the grace and the goodness that he has for us. In Jesus' name, amen.